the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Balance of Nature's fruit and veggie capsules contain 100% fine-ripened fruits and vegetables, tested pure with no pesticides, fillers, or additives of any kind, and are the most effective whole food supplements on the market today. You might ask, how can over 10 servings of 31 different fruits and vegetables fit into six vegetarian capsules? Fruits and vegetables are on an average 85% water. Balance of Nature uses cold vacuum technology to remove the water, leaving only the whole food. We don't use any heat, air, or light drying methods that damage nutrients. Our cold vacuum technology maintains 99% of the fresh fruits and vegetables' original nutritional value. Along with diet and exercise, Mother Nature provides fruits and vegetables to help us maintain good health. To order, go to balanceofnature.com or call 1-800-246-8751. That's 1-800-246-8751. Use the special promo code podcast. I internalized a lot of messages where money was a barrier. It was a reason why I wasn't able to follow my dreams. I didn't learn about money. I, I didn't learn the nuts and bolts of it because it represented something so ugly to me. One thing is that I no longer believe that money corrupts people. I think money turns up the volume on what's already there. If you give someone a million dollars, you've now just given them a million new ways to express who they already are. In a culture as politically polarized and aggressively tribalized as ours, how do people change their minds? I'm Georgie Borman, a mother, author, and cultural commentator born and raised on the West Coast. I want to know what we can learn from people who've been on both sides of contentious issues, whether they end up on the right or the left. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the 180 Cast. Welcome back to the 180 Cast. We have a super interesting episode for you today. So my husband Cody and I wrote a book last year on financial independence, um, the, the early retirement kind of financial independence. It's called Clocking Out Early, and you can get that on Amazon, but that's beside the point. We have pretty ambitious goals for our own financial situation, not to get rich, but just to have more freedom in our life to do the things that are important to us. Um, but Cody especially has a passion for finance and not just the numbers, but helping other people get on top of their financial situation. So he's read a bunch of books on like the intersection of money and psychology and just personal finance strategy in general. But the one he kept interrupting me in my day over and over and over again to share from is this book called Loaded, Money Psychology and How to Get Ahead Without Leaving Your Values Behind. So he'd come up to me during his his break from work because he works from home and he'd be like, Georgie, you have to read this section of the book I highlighted or you have to read these five pages and, you know, did you take this quiz and did you know this? Did you know that? Um, and so on and so forth. So naturally, I had to read the book for myself and... It did not disappoint. Um, I, then I then I was the one interrupting him, even though he'd already read the book, and been like, 
oh my gosh, I didn't, I didn't know this. This part is blowing my mind. So my guest today is the author of that book. She is a behavioral economist at Morningstar and Hello Wallet and an interdisciplinary scholar, well-versed in consumer psychology, personal money management, and cognitive and social psychology. Dr. Sarah Newcomb, thank you so much for being with me today. Oh my gosh, thank you. You can't tell, but I'm just beaming. I love that story. I love picturing you guys <laughs> just um, highlighting and, and bantering on this stuff. Yeah, I think I could probably talk about talk about your book for a long time. And my next episode is that we include, I include a recap segment and I feel like that's going to take up most of the program because there's so much to talk about. Um, okay. So you sort of have had a personal financial like revolution in terms of how you think about money and how you manage your money. So I really wanted to pick your brain on exactly what your story was like. Like you said, in your book that you grew up thinking that having wealth was sort of wrong in a way and that you resented money. Um, why is that? And, and how did you begin to change your mind? Yeah, well, and I know that I wasn't alone because I inherited that point of view from my culture and my family and, um, and my friends, and I still see it around me all the time. And to be honest, it's actually a very, very tempting point of view to just look around and see inequality and greed and um, exploitation and say, this whole system is broken. This whole thing is wrong. Money, it just ruins everything. Money ruins people. Money ruins our systems. Money is just, just throw the whole, burn the whole thing down, you know? <laughs> and, um, and growing up on the side of not having money, where money was um, something that was a constant source of stress in my family growing up. My parents both worked very hard, but they worked at the time in jobs that weren't really career jobs. And so they were supporting four kids and, um, and we got by, but we didn't have more than just enough. And the stress of not having money was always there. And, you know, you notice as a child um, pretty early on the differences between what you have and what your friends have, um, especially around middle school, things start to get um, interesting. Adolescents do a great job of judging you based on what your parents have done, uh, which I think is, is interesting in itself. But the point is that I internalized a lot of messages where money was a barrier, it was a reason why I wasn't able to follow my dreams. I was planned to be a performer and an opera singer. I got into one of the best um, programs in the world for opera, but couldn't afford to go. Um, and that was just sort of a last straw in a long line of opportunities that had passed me by because I couldn't afford to take advantage of them. And the bitterness and resentment that I had toward uh, the world of money by the time I was in my early 20s was enormous, but I hadn't recognized it as bitterness or resentment. I thought that I just, I, I basically had a very self-righteous kind of attitude toward money in, in um, believing that not having it was um, made me more uh, noble than those who did. Yeah, I can see how devastating that would be to get into a school, especially a really good school, and not be able to go because of financial need. Like that, that would just be totally devastating. Mm -hmm. I and in the 
it was all the little things along the way. It was, I mean, I grew up in the age of dot matrix printers, but my family didn't have an internet connection. Um, we didn't have, uh, we, you know, I wasn't, I didn't have a word processor to, um, to type my papers for school. And interestingly, I mean, there's research that shows things about like the, the presentation of work, um, influencing how good it, it seems to be. I mean, the point is that there were, um, there's always people who have more resources than you and those who have less. Um, but the, when you are on the bottom of the ladder, it can, you can internalize it in ways that I've learned the hard way are pretty dangerous and can turn into, um, self, self defeating behaviors later on in life. So what were some of your self defeating behaviors? Well, so ironically, so I was terrible with money, um, but every time, first of all, one of the self-defeating behaviors that I had was that I didn't learn about money. I didn't, I didn't learn how to handle it. I didn't learn how to earn it well. I didn't earn, I, I didn't learn um, the nuts and bolts of it because it represented something so ugly to me um, that I didn't want any part of it. And so I just ignored it. I... I, I, I stuck my head in the sand. Um, and again, I know I'm not alone. Um, this, the ostrich effect, I've written about it. It's, um, it's very common when we avoid psychological pain and money caused me psychological pain and doing finances and living on a budget that's really tight when you're, when you can't, uh, when you don't have skilled labor and you're working at dead end jobs. Um, so, I didn't manage it well. I didn't learn how to manage it well. Um, I, I ignored it. But then when I did have any excess of it, and I mean, I didn't have much excess. <laughs> We're talking $15, $20 extra here and there. I would spend it. And a lot of that was based in my resentment of not having things when I was younger and feeling like, well, I deserve it. Or this feeling, walking around feeling deprived all the time. Then as soon as I had a little bit of financial slack, instead of saving it to have more financial slack in the future, I spent it because that, that was my, some people eat their feelings. I spent my feelings. I shopped my feelings. Um, so I, I just had a lot of unhealthy financial habits that were rooted in um, ignoring money and um, not respecting not respecting anything about it. Um, I think I also felt guilty when I had money that I didn't immediately need. I felt responsible. Um, I felt like I was holding it back from people who needed it even more. Mm. Um, and it's really interesting when we look at research on um, altruism, people who are, who are, who have little um, tend to be more, um, more interested in, in giving to those who have little. Um, it's fascinating. I think some of it is probably empathy, um, understanding what it's like wanting to right. help. There's also, I, I, I talk about in the book, the, the dynamic of interdependence versus independence that happens um, in different economic um, classes. Yes. I thought that was very, that was a really intriguing part. Yeah. And so, so making a mental shift for me, the big aha moment for me came um, 
came in graduate school. But it was when I realized that I had misplaced all of my resentment and anger, that I was angry at money. I was viewing money as if it had some innate power to it. Um, you know, I, I learned to look at the messages that I believed about money. And when I started to write them down and I started to ask myself, is this true? Um, I was, I uncovered a lot of interesting, um, a lot of interesting mistakes of logic, a lot of interesting, um, stories that I was telling myself, but that was the big aha moment for me was in graduate school when I, and I feel like I'm skipping ahead a little bit here. Uh Um, but when I, I learned to recognize the stories I was telling myself, um, but all of those stories were, were inherited or learned from my experiences with money and not having it growing up. Yeah. I, um, do you, do you remember any specific aha moments where you may have been like sitting in class and heard something and it just got your, your gears turning on this? Like when did you start to, to, to recognize, you know, some of those fallacies or some of those stories that were telling that you were telling yourself? Yeah, well, so there were uh, three really big ones that I that come to mind. Um, two of them happened in a class on psychology and financial planning. And I think just for listeners to kind of catch up, how how did I go from hating money and avoiding it to studying it in graduate school? Uh, I basically, when I was 28, I graduated from undergrad because I had to wait until I was 24 and could take out student loans without my parents co-signing to go to school in the first place. So I enrolled at 24, went in undeclared um, because 24 is way too late to start an opera career uh, at least I believe so at the time and um, and so I ended up falling in love with math and I got a degree in mathematics and at 28 I had my daughter I was married and I had this degree in mathematics and I still couldn't get my finances together and I thought well it can't be numbers because I love numbers I'm great with numbers mm-hmm. there's something else going on and that was a big aha moment for me realizing that it was not about numbers um, and clearly being able to prove my, to myself that my inability to manage my money had nothing to do with an inability to do math. So all of those people out there that are saying, well, I'm just bad with money because I'm not a numbers person. That's not an excuse. That's not real. Um, it's not about numbers. It's almost none of money management is about numbers. Yes. The numbers have to work. Yes. You have to be able to do some addition and subtraction, but there are calculators for that. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's really, it's really about the story you're telling yourself. Um, so that was big aha no, moment number one. It's not about numbers. So I thought, okay, well, if this is an exercise in logic, then I'm going to go and I'm going to study the way the pros do it. I was exhausted from being poor. I was tired of it. I wanted to finally be free. And second aha moment was when I realized that the more that I ignored money, and avoided dealing with it, the more I was a slave to it because I was having to work at jobs I didn't care for just to make the bills. I was, um, the more that I didn't learn how to generate wealth and how to manage my assets, the, the more I was basically choosing to continue the, the pattern of lack 
that I had started out in. And so realizing that by ignoring money, money was the big thing that determined what I did in life and what I didn't do. And I decided I wanted to be the one in control. And so I decided I will learn how to kick money's butt. I'm going to learn how to manage it. And so I decided to plan to be, or to train to be a financial planner. Um, and that was where I discovered psychology in financial planning. Jim Grubman was the professor of the first program in the country on psychology and financial planning at Bentley University. Wait, how long ago was this? This was like 2006. Wait, I it took people that long to, to, to have a class on psychology and money management? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, um, and even today, there's only one certification program in um, financial psychology or in, in financial therapy um, at the graduate level. It's at, the, um, at Kansas State University. Um, it's, there's behavioral economics started um, getting some traction uh, in the late 70s when uh, prospect theory was, uh, was posited and when uh, psychologists started uh, publishing in academic economic journals on financial decision-making. But that's even still pretty far removed from the kind of psychology that we're talking about, of just your, the social psychology involved in thinking about money and your life and your identity. Um, there's very few people that are really seriously looking into that crossover still. That is a travesty because it seems so, it seems so obvious that that's important. I mean, money is such a big part of our lives and we study other aspects of our lives with social psychology and cognitive psychology. So it's like, how did money get left out of the picture? And that's, yeah. But I think I, I got, I've got a couple theories. I have theories on everything, but um, my theory is that we think that because there's numbers involved, that it's supposed to be purely logical. And so all the emotional stuff, we think we're doing it wrong. Um, hmm. When really, because we think, well, it's numbers, it should be easy, it should be simple and straightforward. Um, but it just doesn't work that way. Money is a socioeconomic phenomenon. We deal with the economics of it, but I'm trying to get the socio back in the equation. Yeah, because it's like it's not even, um, you know, money itself isn't, isn't like an abstract concept. At some point in human history, we came up with the idea of currency. And that's, so yeah, it is a social phenomenon. But I, I think this is fascinating that you, so, so instead of just personally getting your finances in order, you were like, no, I'm going to go all the way and I'm going to enroll in a program to learn how to be a financial advisor. I am nothing if not extreme, that's for sure. Um, but, but I, I, I think what it was is I just, I was just so, I felt like I wanted to use my mathematics degree in a way that was going to uh, help me get financially stable and learning financial management seemed really interesting to me at the time. Um, and so I went all in and, and it was an elective. This psychology course was an elective, but it just looked so interesting to me. So I, I took it and that led to another big aha moment. There were many, many questions, many aha moments in that class. But one of them was I was thinking about the other day when I was weeding my garden. Um, Dr. Grebman asked us, 
what's the difference between someone who is fabulously wealthy and someone who is filthy, stinking rich? What's the difference? And I thought, oh, it has to do with how they use their money. And some people had some answers. And then he said, the difference is the attitude of the person making the judgment. And I thought, ooh, yeah, yeah. The difference is what are you judging when you're judging people and what they have? The difference is in you. It's not in the balance that they have in the bank. It's in how you judge them. And that was a really interesting shift for me to recognize that my attitudes toward people with money were chosen and were not truth with a capital T. So it started to crack the glass that I was looking through. You know, you don't realize you're looking through glass. You don't realize that your filter is a filter, that your perspective on money is just a perspective. And I think we, as we're growing up, you know, we learn things, we organize things in our mind. This is, this is a tree and this is a truck and this is love and this is money. And we organize these things and we come up with definitions of them in our mind. And then we just take them as truth. But yeah, and that applies to all aspects of life, really. You know, like a, theology is something that, that I'm interested in. And, and everybody believes that their, their, um, their particular view of, like, let's say the end times just leaps off the page. It's just so obvious when you read, you know, the book of Revelation or whatever. It's just, you know, that's just obviously what's going on. When in reality, there's like so many different views. I mean, it really applies to all aspects of life. And when I figured that out, I was like, wow, I really need to to reevaluate a bunch of the things that I've been taught and that I thought were truth with a capital T. It's scary. It's scary to do that. And that was, that's where I feel like this is, it's, um, it becomes a challenge because for me, in order to get my relationship with money healthy, I had to challenge the belief systems of people that I love and respect and question their perspective because even just going to finance school, I was ashamed to tell my family. I was worried that they were going to think I had joined the dark side. And to be honest, I think they did for a while. Um, I think some of them still think that, um, but recognizing that that's their issues with money and not truth with a capital T and realizing that I can love and respect people and also disagree with some of the fundamental ways that they view the world. Um, and it was tough. It was tough for me to challenge the deep stories I had been taught. Biggest one being money is the root of all evil. Money corrupts. And because I grew up very conservative Christian and so I recognize those of you that are listening and that know that that's one of the most famous misquotes of the right. Bible. Uh, yes. real, the real thing, at least New International Version, says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And there's such an important distinction there because money is the root of all evil is what gets touted around. That's the sort of um, proverb that people talk about. But 
that treats money as if it has some innate power in itself to corrupt, to create evil, that this, this thing can ruin our, our life and our world and ourselves. And, um, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil puts the onus back on the individual. What's going on is greed in someone's heart. That's what causes a whole lot of trouble. That's what the real quote means. But that distinction is so important. And to my young mind, I just black and white thinking was, okay, money is money's the root of all evil. Money corrupts people. And you see this belief all over the place because people inadvertently um, absorb these messages about money. And... Um, and when you listen, when you listen for messages, for money messages, it's amazing to start to recognize the things that people believe that they probably haven't even questioned. Um, so the idea that having a whole lot of money can corrupt somebody. Right. And and the other thing is, is that it, I think it kind of allows you to, to tune out um, when you may be being corrupted by something else. Like you could still end up as an incredibly prideful, greedy person and have hardly a penny to your name because, you know, money is the root of, is the root of evil. Not, not me. Couldn't possibly be me. Right. 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 And so I had to challenge that. So that, that belief money is money is responsible. Um, you know, and the thing is you look around at the world and you see incredible inequality, you see incredible amounts of corruption. At least I did. I and I do. I look around and I'm bothered by the 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 divide between the haves and the have-nots. And it's very hard to not just want to say, "Hey, let's again like burn it all down. Let's fix this." But what I had to realize is that money isn't the problem here. If you took money away, we would find other ways to exploit and to um, and to trade on favors and and power and influence. We we would find other ways to do the same things. Money, it's not money is just a system that we've chosen to represent the value that we created. It was it's inherently it's supposed to be value for value in transaction. It was just it was like you said at some point in human history we decided that just trading stuff was inefficient because then I have to go and find the person who wants exactly what I have and happens to have exactly what I need. You spend all your time going around trying to find who to trade with. Money was a shortcut to say, look, I gave you something of value. You give me this little token that represents that value, and then I can go and trade it for something that I need. And it was supposed to be fair. It's inherently um, there's nothing wrong with the system except that it's run by people. <laughs> and right. People have all kinds of ways. We have all kinds of ways of um, of exploiting systems. And our, you know, so what I had to learn was human choices are responsible for evil, not money. Human choice. So then I could put my anger and my frustration and my in righteous indignation into channeling it into more appropriate uh, action rather than avoiding money and making sure that I had no resources to do the things that I might want to do in life. How productive is that? 
rather than do that, I could focus my attention on how can I help learn what kind of a system will work better for more people. Studying economics has been incredible for me in that way in starting to think about, you know, how can we make better systems that actually do help more people to be um, more prosperous? Um, yeah. And, and like when I, um, for instance, I'm sure, you, you know, you probably read it, but when I read Nudge, that was like a revolutionary concept. I'm like, there's all of these small things that we could do that would actually make a difference. That was, that was kind of incredible to me. Like just, you know, like, you know, systems where, whether it's like opt in or opt out or things like that, or, or, or like you talk about in your book, um, you know, visualizing your future self, or they talk about that. Well, like, you know, show people what their life is going to like if they invest 2% or 3% or, or 5% or in their retirement accounts. And, and, um, that made such a big, impact to me. And that's in in itself, I think is really empowering when you realize that you don't have to burn everything down and then start again to make a difference in people's lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, for me, the, um, the big shift was in recognizing that I was misplacing my anger and that by learning, by learning how to um, you, you know, I, I think, again, I studied economics. After I studied um, financial planning, I realized, okay, I don't want to be a financial planner. I want to help other people like me who are smart and ambitious and hardworking and stuck, but not, they don't know why, get unstuck. I knew that I could not be the only person had, who had been standing in my own way financially, Um and didn't know it. So rather than go and uh, be a financial planner, I decided I wanted to study, systematically go and study how do we get in our own way. I know how I was getting in my way, but that doesn't mean that everybody else's issues are the same as mine. We all have our own different cocktail of financial issues that we bring to the table. But what are some of the common things that we do? And so I, I studied economics and psychology as an interdisciplinary PhD. So I studied economics and then I studied psychology. I did both of them and I looked for what were the simple changeable factors of mindset that we could show really impact money management. And there were a few things that came out as I did my dissertation that have been really powerful in helping me retrain my own mind. Um, but so there are some really simple things like nudges, like um, like picturing your future that you can do. But there's also deeper things like recognizing that the stories that you're telling yourself are just mm -hmm. stories and that they can change. Um, but the big thing for me was recognizing that um, that by creating value, by doing something valuable for my community and for a company, I no longer feel any guilt about earning a good salary because I feel like that, that, that whole stigma that I used to put on wealth, I was able to understand that, um, it's just, I, it was just wrong headed. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't unfairly gained. 
Yeah. And, and, um, yeah. And so just, and for me and my own finances, you know, yes, I, I, I think we can do better in coming up with, um, with better public systems. And I hope to contribute to that later in my career. Um, but I also day to day, I'm the one that gets to choose what I do with my own resources. And when I studied economics, I had, there was another aha moment that doesn't seem like psychology, but I think it is. It was that I started to recognize that the only thing that economics has ever been about is figuring out how to take your resources and use them to meet your needs. Resources and needs, that's economics. And Mm -hmm. economics starts with this principle of scarcity. That's why they call it the dismal science, because Mm -hmm. the idea is resources are scarce, but needs are unlimited. And the problem with that is that then you have to go and get yours before it's gone, right? This idea of scarcity has people like grabbing at uh, money and trying to go and get it or get the resources. Um, But if you rethink it and go, wait a minute, our needs are not, our needs are not completely insatiable. Our appetites may be insatiable, but our needs, our needs are not completely unlimited. And recognizing that I could meet all of my needs if I managed my resources well was a huge aha moment. And then I started to think about money management as this, I have a little economy that I'm running and I get to choose. I am king of my own economy. I get to choose how I uh, divide up and use my resources. And um, it was a big shift in my head and it changed everything about budgeting, about, about how I handle money when I started to think in terms of resources and needs. Um, so I've had, I've had probably, I don't know, 20 or 30 sort of aha moments over the last 15 years that I've been doing this. And when I wrote the book, what I tried to do was I tried to take all of those big moments for me where I had taken something that was complex or confusing or vague to me and I had I had done the work to sift through it and get to the simplicity on the other side of complexity where I had the aha moment and then I thought okay now let me just try to hand all my aha moments to people so that they don't have to go through it the hard way. Yeah. And I think that's where your book really shines is it's so accessible. Like anybody can read it and understand what you're saying, because it's like you said before, it's not really about the numbers. It's, it's about the other stuff. It's about the, the stuff in your brain. Um, the, the part that, that really stuck out to me that I think is even applicable, you know, beyond finances is that idea of, um, strategy versus needs. And a lot of times we think that the, the strategies we're using, like, um, getting, getting coffee at Starbucks at, at work, that that's something that we actually need, but actually it's just a strategy to meet a need. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. And I am not a proponent of don't get the latte and you can retire early. I mean, I, I think that that's so simplistic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I am. I I do think that we often spend money um, to meet needs without realizing that there are lots of other ways that we could do it. So the idea here, this actually comes from um, from uh, nonviolent communication. 
which seems like a tangent, but there's the psychologist in the 70s who came up with this theory of human motivation that challenged um, Maslow. So we all know Maslow's hierarchy of needs is that the first thing you, you do is you meet your subsistence needs, your survival needs, and then maybe you can get your emotional needs met. And then once those are met, you can go and self-actualize and, and live your best life. But even Maslow, by the time he died, wasn't sure that our needs fell into a hierarchy at all. And what uh, Marshall Rosenberg um, his theory was that, look, they're not, it's not a hierarchy of needs. They're all just human needs. These are things that we need as humans in order to thrive, in order to feel good. So yes, we need to survive. We need food, shelter, clothing. But if we don't have meaning and friendship and um, intimacy and um, wonder, then we don't want to survive. So it's, it's not one or the other. It's not one and then the other. They're, they're all just, we need all these things. They're needs. They're not wants. So recognizing, if you recognize that everything that we do, everything that we do is, is an attempt to try to meet some fundamental human need. And then you can start, it's just a way of thinking about things, but I found it incredibly insightful and I found it to be a really uh, wonderful way of organizing my understanding of the world. Why do I do what I do? Well, there's some need underneath, even little impulse purchases. There's a need for fun. There's a need for, for, for ease, for, um, there's, there's a need for enjoyment, you know? So recognizing that everything we do, you could trace it back to a fundamental human need. And, then you start to understand why you do what you do. Because if it were really a need for coffee, if you really just needed caffeine, then you could stay at the office and get your coffee or your caffeine and you'd be fine. But if you're going to Starbucks or you're going for a walk uh, to wherever you go in the afternoon at, at work and you've tried to cut that coffee out and it didn't work, it's probably because there was a need that you were meeting with the coffee that wasn't coffee. There's some other need that, because when we don't meet our needs, they don't go away. They just get louder. They just continue to nag at us until we meet them. So if you were, for example, if what it is that you love about going to Starbucks is the atmosphere and the music and the little bit of buzz and a feeling of socializing that you get, then you're not going to get that in the break room at work. And so, of course, just drinking a cup of coffee at work isn't going to meet the need because the need was never for caffeine in the first place. The need was to get out. The need was to, um, maybe the need is to take a walk. Maybe it was to, maybe it's to connect with other people. Maybe it's just to uh, break the monotony of your day at work. Whatever it is, recognizing what the real need is, is a really important first step because then you can figure out a strategy to get that need met without spending as much money. So when I realized, for example, that for me, that break in the afternoon at work was really about getting outside. I need time outside. So I didn't want, you know, the, the coffee shop was better than nothing, but really what I wanted was to be outside. And so what I started doing was I started making a cup of tea in the office and taking it with me on a walk to a park near my work and spending a few minutes outside looking at the birds. There's a little stream. I enjoyed that. So, and it really met my 
my need and I spent no money. And there are many, many things in our lives like that where we're using financial strategies to meet needs that we could probably meet with non-financial strategies. But if you think of it like the whole, you have to know the difference between a want and a need, um, then what you end up telling yourself is, if I don't need it to survive, then I don't need it. And I think that's just wrong. Yeah, and you can't stick with that either. Yeah, and that's why we hate budgeting, because budgeting is basically a plan for how you're going to feel deprived. You're making a plan to feel unhappy. Right. Would you do that? Um, because we feel like we have to. And so the idea that I have behind budgeting is, yes, the numbers have to work, but your life has to work too. And so this is budgeting is not about creating a plan for how you're going to cut back so that you can uh, meet all your financial goals, even if your emotional goals aren't met. I think that that's that's a terrible way to live. Um, instead, what budgeting, I think, should be is a plan for taking stock of all your needs, emotional, um, intellectual, physical, and saying, okay, how am I going to use the resources I have to meet all of my needs and so that none of them are going unmet? No part of me feels ignored. I'm living my best life now. I'm not budgeting so that I can live my best life later. I'm living the best version of my life I can right now, and I'm happy about it. Therefore, it's sustainable. I can keep this budget because I'm happy on this budget. And so you start to recognize resources you can use that maybe aren't money. Uh, lots of things that you might be spending money on right now that there are alternative ways to, to get done. Um, and it becomes a creative problem solving challenge rather than an exercise in feeling deprived. Exactly. And that's something that Cody and I talked a little bit about in, in clocking out early was budgets shouldn't feel like a really restrictive diet. They should feel empowering that your budget is getting you somewhere. It's getting you something that you need. And if your budget isn't working for you, then you sort of have to re, you know, reevaluate what you're doing and, and how you're, you're meeting your needs. Um, and, that, that's, that's, yeah, I think you, you've really, you've really hit on that. Like just with budgeting, like the word budget, people are like, uh, uh, it kind of makes you cringe. Like, oh, you're asking me to do math problems, like word problems. When I was in middle school, that was like the worst thing in the world. I feel like most people think about budgeting, like the word problems in their math book. Like that is just, I would rather pull my nails out than make a budget. Completely. Yeah. And, and in reality, you know, like it's, yeah, it, it's just, it's terrible. I, I hate budgeting. Um, but I, that's why for me thinking of it in terms of, no, I'm running a little economy. I'm running, I've got my little world and I'm running it and I have some resources and I have some needs. Now, how am I going to match them up? And a lot of the resources that we have, we don't really take stock of. You know, people people think of their resources as their income, and that's it. But there are so many things that we have 
um, that we have access to, that we have inside of us, that we, I mean, your creativity, your personal genius is probably the best resource you have. And learning how to turn that resource into an income stream could be amazing. Or learning how to take the resources that you have and just meet your needs directly without even having to bring income into the picture. You know, there are, there are so many different ways that we can create joy and satisfaction in our lives. But we think of budgeting as this compartmentalized part of our life. You know, there's your financial life and there's the rest of your life, but they're all the same. And especially when you think about how our financial lives intersect with absolutely everything and you know money going back to the beginning you know like what you have and what you don't have determines a lot about what you can and you can't do in this world but it also can the way you think about it can determine what you can and can't do and so figuring out how to look at your life and say, what are my resources? We don't all start with assets. We don't all start out with land or, um, or capital. Some people do. Some people are fortunate enough that they have all sorts of ways to earn income. Um, you know, just because other people have built that up for them previously, but most of us start out where, we have to work first. And another big sort of economic aha moment for me was in learning that there's really only three ways to make money, land, labor, or capital. There's only three. Land is obviously, you know, property, having having property that you can rent, you can, if you have land, you can mine it, you can forest it, you can rent it, you can develop it, you can do all sorts of things with it. Um, but it's an asset because it can generate income. Um, capital is just stuff, whether it's finan- money itself is a form of capital, but also all the things that we use um, are, are just capital. There, there are ways that you can turn things into income streams. And then there's labor. And we all know about using labor to turn it into income. But here was the big aha moment. There are only three ways to make income, land, labor, or capital. So if you want to ever stop laboring, you must put, you must have land and or capital in order to replace the income from your labor. So the goal of financial independence, the strategy for financial independence, if you're starting as a laborer, which most of us do, you take some of the income from your labor and you put it into land and capital so that it can create passive income for you later. And that is, and then eventually when you have enough assets that are, that are able to earn you rent or interest, then you can stop laboring. And that's all retirement is. Retirement and independent wealth are exactly the same thing. Yes. Yes, that is true. People people ask us a lot. They're like, so you want to retire and you just want to, what, like go go sip margaritas on the beach somewhere? And we're like, no, we just want to be able to do the kind of work that we want without having to worry about bringing in an income. You know, that means I can volunteer more. That means we can spend more time with the kids. We can take them on field trips and, and all of this, this, this other stuff. I feel like, you know, um, retirement just for so many people, even people who are further along in life than Cody and I, it's just like, that's, 
we sort of have like this this caricature of retirement that's sort of far off in the corner somewhere where you're you're living your golden years on a golf course somewhere and then it's like we'll just you know I'll worry about that later right now I'm focused on work right right and and really you know i think all of it is um a healthy attitude toward money in my opinion is looking at it and saying look i have i have goals in my life Right. I, what are, what are the things I want to do in life and how can I use my resources to help support me in doing those things in my life? Yeah. So what, what do you think is the most persuasive? Like if you had somebody sitting in front of you, which I'm sure you've, you've had a lot of people over the years sit in front of you who really believe that money fundamentally is a corruptive influence, that it is, you know, the root of all evil. So what, when you're when you're working with somebody like that, what do you how do you get them thinking about money in a different way? Like what are what are the the things that really get them to think, "Oh, maybe maybe money isn't in itself immoral." Right. Well, one thing, one thing is that I no longer believe that money is that money corrupts people. I think money turns up the volume on what's already there. Yeah. If you give someone a million dollars, you've now just given them a million new ways to express who they already are. And you'll, and maybe you'll find out more about who they already are, you know? And yes, our, our, you know, we evolve as people as our lives go on. And so if you suddenly have money uh, where you didn't before, um, now the, the experiences that you have will be different and that will affect how you think and how you evolve as a person. But the, the whole point of um for me of getting healthy with money of, of of it's is realizing that money itself it has no power it is it is just a system like i said if if we didn't have money we would have some other system it's simply a way that we've chosen it's it's a it's it's a it's an inanimate object it's a thing what what we bring to it that's what gives it either good or evil influence on the world. Um, because for every example of exploitation, there's someone who's using their resources to heal and to build and to promote and to, you know, if, if for example, so uh, one of the executives of Morningstar, where I work, um, he, I don't think he, he, he wouldn't mind me saying this because he said it publicly, but like at one point his teenage daughter said to him, um, Hey dad, are we in the 1%? That means we're bad. And she's really worried. And, and he, he's worried because she's now demonizing herself and her family and everyone around her because she doesn't want to be, responsible for inequality and you know good on her good on her for recognizing that that that's real but how well is she going to manage the resources that come into her hands if she is demonizing herself and everyone she knows she she won't be able to handle this resource in any way um that's that's really productive for herself or 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 others people for example when um when they got payouts insurance payouts for 9-11 loved ones that were lost in 9-11 a lot of people couldn't they couldn't internalize they couldn't take that money and use it for themselves because the pain was too great 
Um, and in fact, a lot of times when people get become wealthy from um, insurance settlements, when there's been a tragedy, will either give the, all that money away um, or use it. You know, they'll set they'll set up a foundation or they'll do things with it. But it's it's psychologically because it's very, very difficult to enjoy something that came at such when when all you want is your loved one back um, finding pleasure in life from money you got from their death is, yeah. is it's just too confusing for people. It's too emotionally painful. Um, but again, there, there's just a story there. Um, so anyway, I, I'm going in circles here, but I feel like um, in telling, in helping people understand that money itself is not evil. I think to be honest, Evil only, it, it, here's my understanding of it. This isn't science. This is my personal version of, of truth here. That nothing evil can happen without humans being involved. You know, there's tragedy and there's devastating natural events. But evil, evil only happens with human intent. And that includes money. So... Yeah. It's, it's the intention behind something that makes it good or evil. Money is a neutral resource, and if it weren't money, it would be something else. It's just a system. So let's if you don't like the system, let's fix it. Let's recognize the legit issues and make it better. But just opting out of the whole world of money doesn't help anyone. It doesn't help the world. I, I know lots of people that would probably create incredible businesses that would do amazing things for this world, but they won't because they hate the, the business and financial system so much that they just don't want anything to do with it. So you're not helping if you're just opting out. Yeah. And I have one more question for you that sort of dovetails off this. And and I noticed when I was reading your book, like you seem to have a very balanced, um, sort of clarifying view of privilege, um, that I, that I, is very hard to find. Um, so like your message in the book is very personally empowering, yet so many other people who identify as social justice warriors take what seems to me like the opposite approach and they make it all about the system and not about what each person can do individually to improve their situation and improve the situation of other people. Like their ideology constantly casts all of the blame onto others, even others who, who have done nothing wrong per se in their actions in life, but other than to sort of belong to a certain demographic, which, you know, is, is, part and parcel of the, the system, so to speak. And so it's like, is fundamentally about not just getting other people to change their behavior, but overhauling an entire economic system because the system controls your destiny. And, but the research that you lay out in your book though, seems to strongly support the idea that feeling out of control of your situation is, is disempowering, not just psychologically, but it has like a real observable impact on your finances when you feel like you're not in control of your destiny. So, so what do you make of that? Because you're very concerned about inequality. Um, what do you, what do you make of that sort of divide? 
Yeah, well, so I had the I had the benefit of um, studying at um, the University of Maine, and this the program that I studied in was funded by George Mitchell, who is one of my peacemaking heroes. He, for example, brokered peace between um, in in Ireland. Um, so I got to ask him some questions. This seems like a tangent, but I promise it'll come back around. I I asked him, um, you know, about his his. Thoughts, how, what gives him hope when he's seen the darkness um, in humanity up, up front? And um, it was interesting. He said that when people allow them, what he's seen over and over in many, many, many different situations is that when people allow themselves to internalize an identity as being victimized, which is so common, right? Because we are so us and them. We love us and them. It's simple. It's easy. Um, but if you allow yourself to believe that you are the victim of someone else's um, uh, will, ill will, then people who do this, people that allow themselves to identify as being a victim, will then accept from themselves and the people around them behavior that they never would have accepted otherwise. We justify doing terrible things to each other if we think someone has done something terrible to us. Mm-hmm. And and so this retaliative force, this demonizing of one another, um, I see the very same thing in um, in class tension, and um, it's in us and them. It's easy to you know we shame the rich for being rich, we shame the poor for being poor. There's shame all over the place. There's judgment all over the place. I I recognize it as the mind's desire to matter, the human desire to matter, and um, and the ways these are the shortcuts of our brain that we we then um, it, it, we stereotype. I mean, it's it, the rich. We we see the rich as as um, Ebenezer Scrooge, and you know some you know, person monocled monopoly man stepping on the neck of the poor. And sure, there are, there are people that are doing that. Um, and there are many, many, many who are not. Um, and, and so recognizing stereotypes of all kinds and catching yourself and going, wow, am I judging an entire group <laughs> uh, based on my opinions of a few? Um, I don't want to do that. And, um, so there's that. There's recognizing that it's simply a shortcut of the mind, and it's a it's a laziness um, to paint uh, the rich and the poor like that, the haves and the have-nots like that. But also the other thing that George Mitchell said was that when people allow themselves to feel victimized, they're then really um, really good fodder for um, for becoming uh, extremists of any kind uh, because. When you feel powerless, you want to be part of something that feels bigger than you, that feels meaningful. And so I am a proud social justice warrior, but I don't think that social justice comes um, through demonizing anybody. I think it comes through thoughtful reevaluation of the systems that we've put in place and, um, and being smarter about um, how we measure success and failure um, of, of governments, of businesses, of economies, 
Um, I mean, it's, I could go on and on about this. Um, but I think that, uh, you mean we have down and actually think about things. What? Oh, it's so hard. I know it's so much easier. It's so much easier to yell and scream. Um, but, but honestly, I mean, it, it, I think that, um, I think that economic justice is in our future, but it's not going to come by tearing every, just burning it down. Because you know what happens every time we just burn something down? The vacuum of whatever other power system exists uh, comes in to fill it. And it's usually organized crime. So I would rather, <laughs> I would rather take a system that, um, that is functional and focus on how we can make it work better for more people um, and in 50 years have a much more thriving economy um, where people's quality of life is really high, not just GDP being high. Um, I could nerd out on this stuff all day. But, yeah. um, but I think, you know, the important thing is that scared people do scary things. And um, we... It's just as wrong to paint a wealthy person as evil because they're wealthy and because they have the privilege of means um, as it is to paint a person as uh, anything because of the color of their skin or any other um, thing that they don't have control over. There's a lot to think about there. Dr. Newcomb, thank you so much again for joining me today. This has been such a fascinating conversation. I wish I could keep you for like five more hours, um, but I've already kept you a little bit too long. Uh, I'm so excited that I can share this with the 180 community. Um, you can follow Dr. Newcomb at finance underscore therapy on Twitter. And she also has some intriguing posts on Medium as well. And her work is at Hello Wallet. You can find Loaded at bookstores everywhere and on Amazon. And I really, really strongly encourage you to check it out. If you read one book this year, I think that this is a very good candidate to be the one that you read. Leave me a voicemail. Hehe, <laughs> we have voicemail now. You can leave me a voicemail at 323-999-1802. I love to feature listener comments on the podcast or ask me a question, share your thoughts on any of the episodes, or share a cool 180 story of your own. That's 323-999-1802. And, of course, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at 180Casts. Go ahead and give the podcast a review on iTunes if you like it. Like I've um, said before, it really does help to get this program in front of a lot more ears so we can grow our community and have really interesting conversations. And then you can follow me on Twitter at Georgie underscore Borman, where I am pine the pine on politics and culture. Until next time, seek the truth, share your values, and listen with your heart and your mind. God bless. Executive produced by Kevin McCullough. Music by Ricky Kraft and Joe Kim Nordenson.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.